Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play. Visit SaveTheDamnScore.com today. I Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast, episode number 57, recording from the Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom and wife's music room. I'm Logan Anderson, a high school and small college play-by-play broadcaster in South Dakota. If this is your first time listening, this is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories and wisdom from sportscasters around the country with the hope that you'll be able to be both entertained and educated in the business. In this episode, I'm happy to say we are joined by Joe Davis, the TV play-by-play voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, as well as Fox Sports. Joe joins us from his car driving through a downpour in Indiana. Joe, how's it going today? Other than that, things are good. I'm completely soft at this point to the weather. Uh, you know, grew up in Michigan, have been in L.A. for a year, and already 50 and rainy for me is like the end of the world. i a year of softening, and that's all it's taken. You're still able to drive in the rain, though, without, without uh, you know, calling the National Guard out. Yeah, well, we're about to find out. I'm still in the early stages of this drive, but I'm giving it my best shot. All right. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on, and we'll just start off uh, with with about the same icebreaker that I use on just about every show. Is when did you know you wanted to go into sportscasting? Really early on, and I think that's part of the reason why I've been fortunate to have uh, this stuff happen for me. That's happened for me. You know, it's it's okay if you don't know what you want to do until a little bit later on, but it sure is a nice bonus if you can figure out what your passion is at an early age and probably junior high i knew exactly what i wanted to do started paying close attention to guys when i was listening to them call games you know when i was turning games on on tv i was paying as much attention to the guys calling the games as i was the actual games themselves and because i knew at an early age it kind of guided my decision making for lack of a better way to put it when i was looking at colleges and uh, once I got into college, things I was doing, I was really fortunate to know early on. And, you know, you mentioned how that decision-making led you to uh, making certain decisions one way or another regarding your colleges, because you didn't go to a broadcast factory, uh, Syracuse and Missouri, one of those. You give hope to all of us other small school people. You went to Beloit, <laughs> Division Three in Wisconsin. And I guess, how were you able to use that to your advantage? You know, I think that 
obviously it's great to go to a place like Syracuse or, or one of those other broadcasting powerhouses that you reference, and you get an incredible Rolodex of people that have also gone there that can help you out. We all know how important networking is, and I have no question that those places are great, uh, great proving grounds and great places to learn. But the benefit that I had at a smaller place was that because it wasn't a broadcasting school, I didn't have any competition to get any reps that, that could possibly be had. Now, nobody had ever even heard of play-by-play broadcasting when I got there, but I kind of got to blaze my own trail. And, you know, the, the recruiting pitch from the football coach is that I could announce the basketball games right away. Those places like Syracuse, I, I know that doesn't happen right away. So the fact that I got those hands-on reps as soon as I got to campus, that uh, was a big benefit to me that I wouldn't have had probably going to a bigger place. And with those hands-on reps, where were they being heard over? Did you guys have a campus radio station? Was it a webcast? How did that work? They had, uh, it was mostly web streams that I did the games on. There was a campus radio station, but uh, there were no games done on it. I think we did get some games on the air eventually. Kind of going back to if, if there was an opportunity to have, I tried to find a way to make it happen. But it was mostly web streaming at that point through the uh, athletic website. You also were able to play college football while at Beloit College. Also, I think a little bit of baseball. You played quarterback, eventually transitioned to wide receiver. How much does it help to have played a game at a higher level than just your average high school athlete when you're doing a football broadcast for Fox Sports? I think it definitely helps, and I think I'm a football coach's son, so having grown up around the sport, probably adds another little layer of uh, experience that it might not usually have for somebody in our business. I think yeah, very clearly, specifically in football, it helps when we take my analysts a step further and, you know, be able to be able to engage them on a level that uh, somebody who hadn't had that experience might not be able to. I think it's fine if you don't have that experience. There, there are plenty of guys doing the job very, very well without it. Where I think it uh, helps me in a spot that may not be as clear is as a quarterback, it was always important to be steady, right? And be the, be the most calm guy in the huddle and in the big moments of games as a play-by-play guy. And it wasn't until recently that I, I started thinking about this connection. I think that that's kind of a transferable skill for when those big moments hit and the crowd's going crazy and, the tendency is for your heartbeat to speed up and you know, to, it, it's not always easy in those spots, but I think because of the experience I had kind of controlling that heart rate and trying to stay cool and calm uh, as a quarterback, I think I probably use some of those same ideas in big moments as a broadcaster. So your first professional broadcasting experience, if I'm correct, was with the Schomburg Flyers while you were still a student at Beloit College. How did that opportunity fall into your lap? Found it on staatalent.com, which is a website that I give any any person that asks about getting into the business. I was on there all day long when I was in college, looking at the job boards and looking at uh, the, you know, the uh, water cooler forum and just trying to study the industry and find out as much as I could. And that was posted winter of my junior year at that job opening was. And went very aggressively after it. Um, you know, I, I drove down to Schaumburg at one point and I delivered resume and uh, tape in person 
followed up with a thank you note written on a baseball to try and set myself apart. And even for an unpaid internship like that, I think there were 90 people that applied. And just through uh, being really aggressive, I think, I, I lucked out and they gave me a shot. And the tape that I got from that is what helped me land the first job post-graduation. And then your first really big break was getting the double A position with the Montgomery Biscuits. And I read a little bit about this. There's some fantastic stories as to how uh, that came about. And I'm just going to let you tell it. How did that come about? You know, uh, it's another thing where I, I just, a lot of it is luck. I, I wouldn't have gotten it first of all, without having had this summer at Schaumburg because I had a legit baseball tape that I could present at that point. You know, before that I had, a couple games I had done in college, but nothing that would allow me to compete for a full-time minor league job like that, where there are 140, 150 people that were going for it. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I had a job lined up already in independent baseball, but figured I would send stuff out anyways, to any openings I saw and found a place that was willing to take a chance on a young guy and stepped out of uh, I guess senior year English class or literature class or something to take a call from the GM. I'm not sure that that I got the job. I'm not sure that I made it entirely clear in my resume and cover letter that I was still actually a college kid. Uh, I didn't lie on there, but I spun it where spun it where it maybe didn't look exactly like I was still in college. I think that maybe would have turned them off. Uh, But a couple interviews and one in person with the ownership group in Chicago. And thankfully, uh, Thankfully, they were willing to take a chance, and it was kind of the springboard. And when you accepted that job, you actually stepped out of your English class in college for that. What did your teacher say or your professor say when that happened? Uh, I think it was a big enough class where it was kind of under the radar. It could have been anything. You know, I could have been stepping out to, uh, to hit the restroom. But I had my hand on my phone the entire day knowing that a call could come to give an answer one way or another and felt it, uh, felt it buzz midway through class and was not outside long, but I probably had quite the look on my face when I came back in. You mentioned that you had, before you applied for this, you had an independent baseball job lined up and that one was with the Lake County fielders who went under shortly after ended up being more or less a disaster of a program. How fortunate in hindsight were you to avoid that situation? I've, my wife and I have talked about that before. Can you imagine if we hadn't gotten the biscuits job and we had gone to Lake County and like, I I don't know, I I wouldn't be where I am now. I I can't imagine. I think the guy that wound up getting the job quit like on the air, right? Like, like mid air or mid broadcast, he, he shut the thing down. (laughs) And so, you know, to think of, think about how awful of a situation that is and how close I was to winding up in it. I, I thought I was really fortunate to be getting in that position. But, man, who knows how that would have altered uh, kind of the trajectory of my career. I'm glad that I don't know and never will. You mentioned that you've had a lot of good fortune to get where you are, and certainly anyone who reaches the level that you do has that happen. But it seems that the good luck always seems to happen to the hardest working people who are prepared to jump on opportunities when they present themselves. I guess, what have you done throughout your career 
to put yourself in that position to get lucky when the opportunity arises. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I, I guess, yeah, I, I agree with you that a lot of good luck is putting yourself in position for that to happen. For for me, the hard working part, I think that it's, you know, without losing sight of your current job and, you know, the day-to-day of your current responsibilities, I always tried to have an eye on what's next. So even, you know, even when I was headed down there to start the Montgomery job, which is a huge deal, right? You know, 21-year-old kid getting that job and going down there to be a full-time double-A announcer, I knew how huge that was. And I wasn't taking it for granted, and I didn't want to lose focus on a day-to-day basis doing that job the best I could. But I was always thinking about what that next step would be and always trying to network with that in mind and always trying to find the next opportunity, uh, even if it was incremental, the next little stepping stone to help, you know, whether that was my TV reel as a, as a means to an end of starting a career doing TV play-by-play or, you know, networking in baseball to, to break through and eventually get to the majors. Always trying to look at what's next. And I think that that probably helped set me up to get lucky and uh you know but at the same time anytime i talk about that i always reiterate how important it is and and it's not easy but how important it is to at the same time have an intense focus on what's going on right now so one of those lucky moments that you were able to take advantage of basically happened when you just got a random email from some guy critiquing your work while uh while with montgomery and it ended up being someone from ESPN that eventually put you in touch with other people. Who was that, and how did that happen? Yes, yeah, so his name was Dan Quinn. Uh, he worked in PR at ESPN, so not in any job that where he could like hire announcers, but he was in the company. Uh, so yeah, my first week in Montgomery, I got an email from Dan Quinn. I had no idea who he was at the time. Just thought he was a random fan, and, and he was. He got hurt playing pickup soccer, I think, and so was on leave from work. And happened to read about the Montgomery Biscuits, thought it was a cool name, logged onto the website to buy a hat, clicked on the listen live link while he was on there and enjoyed what he was listening to. Again, he wasn't any kind of like talent uh, expert, uh, but kind of became a Biscuits fan. And we developed a friendship and he came down to Montgomery towards the end of that year to see the ballpark in person and, it was just kind of in passing, like, hey, would you mind introducing me to somebody at ESPN3 or ESPNU? And he didn't know anyone that well, but I uh, had the means to, to find an email address or a phone number of somebody who I might want to get a hold of down there is to, to get a foot in the door. And he kind of did open that door. And then, you know, through being, uh, through being aggressive and continuing to think about what's next, I was able to take advantage of that. And it eventually led to some work with ESPN and I guess that eventually led to the to the full, first full-time contract with ESPN. What was your welcome to ESPN moment, where obviously that's a bigger stage than you had ever been on? Do you remember what your first game was like? What was some of the challenges right away? Very first one I did was a high school football game on the opening weekend on ESPN3, so it wasn't even on the air. It was just online. It was Buford high school in Georgia against Gainesville, Georgia, whose quarterback was a sophomore Deshaun Watson. 
um, who truthfully at that point, I, he was like a big recruit, but I wasn't that impressed by the guy. I guess it shows you how much I know as a, as a talent evaluator. Uh, but I, the, the moment that stood out to me where it was like, wow, was hearing the ESPN theme music play in my headset for the first time. I, I vividly remember that and thinking, wow, you know, I, it didn't matter to me at that point that the game was only on the internet. I had, I had the ESPN microphone flag in my hand and I had that classic ESPN college football music, which unfortunately they've changed, but uh, you know, the old song playing in the headset, that, that was a pinch me moment for sure. All right. Just walk us through the cliff notes version of how you got from that point to where you are now as the full-time TV voice of the Dodgers. I did two years there at ESPN. And then when the contract was up, the due diligence of seeing what else is out there, seeing what other interests there might be. And uh, Fox was very interested and, you know, put together an offer that as far as just uh, stature of the role and the level of games I was going to be doing, the incredible depth ESPN has, they just couldn't offer me that same kind of thing. And so I made what at the time was a really hard decision to leave ESPN and go to Fox. And I'm in my fourth year at Fox now, uh, going into my third year with the Dodgers. First year there was just road games while Ben was still doing the home games. And then last year was the first year as the, the more or less the full-time guy. So, uh, you know, a lot of steps along the way in the middle, you know, in, in deeper into the cliff notes version of that, but that's kind of the, uh, the basic rundown of how we got to where we are now. You know, I was doing a little bit of reading up on your path to the Dodgers. And one of the, one of the serendipitous moments for lack of a better word that helped you along the way involved losing a handwritten letter to Len Casper and having it recovered at a Taco Bell. How did that happen? Yeah, it was while I was in college, another one of those lucky moments. Uh, sophomore in college, I guess. I grew up a big Cubs fan. My dad and I were going to a game, drove over from Michigan, and I had written a long you know, front and back of a of a sheet, you know, note telling him that I wanted to get into the business and admired him and uh, was going to deliver that to the booth, just give it to security and have them take it up to him or whatever. We parked and walked through Wrigleyville, and we got to the base of the, the, the entrance of the press box and reached in my pocket to give it to the security guard, who is now, I consider, an acquaintance who I, who I see at the park each year. Uh, his name's Keith, but Keith didn't have any idea who I was at that point. Uh, the letter was gone, so I, I was bummed. I, the letter had fallen out of my pocket at some point on the walk to the ballpark, well, we got a call on the way home from the park that day after Cubs loss. I was bummed about that too, but got a call and a voicemail from the owner of the Taco Bell across the street from Wrigley. She had received the letter. Somebody had found the letter on the sidewalk out front, brought it into her, and she said she would make sure that it got to Len when they got back from their upcoming road trip. So a few weeks later, I got an email from him, and uh, we established a relationship that way and, and Len has been a huge help to me ever since then has anyone told you that you replaced a, a pretty famous broadcaster I've heard that I heard the guy that was there before me was pretty good at his job and have been there quite a while yeah I heard the same thing so I don't want to talk a whole lot about that just because I'm sure you've been how many times have you been asked about trying to fill those shoes uh, I mean it, it, it just about any interview that I do, but 
honestly, Logan, it, it I knew coming into it that that was going to be the case, and you know, that that came with the territory, and that's also why the job is as special as it is. So, you know, while while it's something that I I talk about anytime I I do an interview, I'm okay with it because it's also you know, the responsibility of following Ben and to an organization with as much history as the Dodger organization has and with a history that's so closely tied to its broadcast booth, it really is part of what makes it special. So I get it. He's the greatest ever to do it. I get that I'm the guy following him and that's a big story. And I'm totally okay with, with that being the kind of the headline anytime, uh, anytime my name comes up at this point. I'm flattered that that's the case. So I guess the only thing I'm really going to go into any depth about is how has that relationship that you've, I'm assuming, have tried to cultivate, I guess I don't want to assume you're best friends or anything, but how has he been able to help you improve with his just depth of experience and longevity with the with the program? There are a couple of things that he's told me and, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like we're best friends either. He, you know, he, uh, had an incredibly long career. And I think when it's time to retire, it was time to retire and step away and be with his wife, Sandy, and totally understand that. But he's not gone without passing a few things on to me. And one of those, the the biggest one was to be myself. And that's something that Red Barber told him when he stepped into the booth in 1950. Uh, It seems simple, but it's not. You know, when we take these jobs we try to be or the tendency at least is to try and be what we think we should be in the position. And so the most important thing, because especially in baseball, you're going to get exposed if you're not, but you just have to let yourself be yourself. And it seems like simple advice, but it was great advice from Ben. And then the other thing that I really have taken with me from our conversations is, you know, he's known for being at his best in the biggest moments. And I was curious what his philosophy was. And he he kind of kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier the the whole quarterback connection of trying to stay calm and lower your heart rate and not get too excited when the moment does. Uh, he compared it to he said, look if if your house is burning down and all heck breaks loose, you are probably not going to get yourself and your cat and all your belongings and all your family out of the house if you're freaking out. You've got to be the calmest person in the room. And it's kind of the same way when the big moment happens and that place is going crazy and there's a big swing and a long drive. If you let your heartbeat get going too fast and your eyes too wide, you're probably not going to do that moment justice. So just the idea of the bigger the moment, the the calmer you have to make yourself, um, getting that advice from the greatest ever to accomplish that, and, and embrace that whole philosophy. Uh, it's advice that's really special to me. And I, you know, coming from the, the greatest ever to embrace that, you know, that philosophy of being calm in the big moments. And I find myself thinking about it often. You mentioned being yourself on the air was a huge part of the advice that he gave you. How do you do that? How do you get your personality into the game and be uniquely you without uh, losing the fundamentals of the game. Yeah, and without making it about you, right? I think that's there's a fine Correct. line in being yourself and making the game about yourself. That's the last thing I ever want to do. So I never look at it as injecting myself 
or, uh, you know, putting my imprint on the broadcast. I never look at it like that. It's more just letting you be you and not trying to be something that you're not. And it, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that over a long baseball season, you're going to get exposed if you don't allow that to happen. But on the other hand, a long baseball season is a great opportunity to allow it to happen. So uh, it's, it, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, kind of a hard thing to explain or give advice on just because it is, it is really simple while at the same time sounding kind of contradictory, right? Like you, it's such a hard thing to accomplish, but all you got to do is just let you be you, which it, it doesn't seem like that should be hard. Uh, and it's something that's only going to come with time. I think every person that gets into this goes through this process and some find themselves on the air faster than others. Uh, but I think that we all eventually hopefully settle into a place that is uniquely us. We had Adam Amin on the podcast a few episodes back, and I know that you and him are close personal friends all the way back from, I think, your time with Schaumburg, if I'm correct. And you guys have both had kind of parallel rises through the industry, both reaching a lot of success at a young age. How has your guys' relationship helped to push each other as you've progressed? Yeah, I think it's helped a lot. And, uh, you know, Wayne Randazzo belongs in that conversation too, where the three of us for a long time, as soon as we got into this business, it really helped to have somebody who, you know, who, who got it, who understood exactly what we were going through, um, who had similar goals and who had the personality. And I'm speaking for both those guys, the personality, despite kind of being in direct competition a lot of the time early on, to look past that and do everything that they could to make the rest of us better and to, to help, uh, you know, I'm excited about Adam and Wayne climbing the ladder as I am about my own, uh, steps up the ladder. So, you know, the, we, we bonded over our competitive drive and passion for the industry, but I think all three of us uh, proudly would say that we've been selfless enough to continue to, to not let that, passion and that drive and that competitiveness get in the way of our friendship and uh, assisting each other as we go. It was really big, especially early on when we were first starting exchanging tapes and uh, having somebody who you knew you could get honest feedback from. And I think that we all developed that, but to have it from somebody who's also a good friend, and in this case, two good friends, that's, uh, that's pretty special when you can consider somebody a, a best friend and a best contact to, to get constructive criticism and support. What were the situations when you guys were in direct competition with each other? I don't know if it was like if we were ever up for the same exact job, um, more just, you know, all, all in the minors and all somebody who wanted to not be in the minors, right? You know, all, all wanted to make that next step, whatever it was. Um, and then Adam and I have had a little more parallel path as far as the TV stuff goes while Wayne got into the majors faster. And, um, you know, so, so our paths diverged some in that regard, I guess for a short time, Adam and I were in direct competition, both being at ESPN for uh, the two years that I was there, but I guess it was never one of those things where we all applied for the same job and were finalists for it more just, uh, abstractly 
in the business when you're looking at a big picture. Spending a lot of time in minor league baseball, I've talked to a couple people uh, who have also spent time in the minors, and the stories from the road trips where you know the bus breaks down or you're in a ballpark where you can't see anything, just kind of the weird horror stories that happen along the way. I'm sure you got one or two of those. Are there any that you would like to share? Yeah, one that I, I always think of is opening day, my third year in Montgomery, our third and final year, we were at Pensacola opening the new ballpark there. So we're really excited for that. This waterfront ballpark is going to be beautiful, beautiful day. We get down there, go into the press box four hours before first pitch or whatever at this point. And they're still in there working on stuff like, you know, they're, they're under the counters, putting in screws and getting the, getting the counters mounted to the wall. And like, wow, well, uh, this is, you know, this is interesting. We're, we're a few hours from the season starting and the counters still aren't fixed in there. Uh, but figuring out know, this is the worst thing. It's not a, not a huge deal. And we knew that the park wasn't completely ready. Uh, well, they didn't have the phone line hooked up in the visiting radio booth. And as you know, you need a phone line to do a radio broadcast. It, it, you know, I'm assuming it's a little different now. There's ways around it with streams and everything. You could use Skype or whatever to stream it. But at this point, this is 2012. We weren't quite that far along in, uh, in you know, the whole technology of minor league baseball broadcasting. We wound up doing the game opening day, which you obviously wait all off season for, but doing it off a cell phone and to not have to hold the phone up to our ear the whole time. I'm saying we, Aaron Vargas was my number two that year. So this is his first day in the booth. We were taping, we taped the phone to uh, like an empty, it might not even have been empty just so it was heavier, but uh, like a Mountain Dew bottle, liter of Mountain Dew, 20 ounce Mountain Dew. We had the, we had the phone taped to it to kind of mimic <laughs> like a microphone stand. That's how we did opening day. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, one of the other things that I find, I don't want to say interesting, that I ask a lot of people, mostly just for my own benefit as I try to also grow in the business, is I know you're you're married. You have a young daughter. I've been married for about five months, no kids yet. But how do you balance family life with the grind of the professional life of a sportscaster? It's definitely the most challenging part. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it comes with the territory of doing a job that so many people want to do and doesn't feel like a job when you're doing it, but it is, you know, again, I would, I would not want to do anything else in the world. I have the most spectacular job, but it is the drawback to it being away from family. And that's getting harder and harder as my daughter gets older and older. And you know, I think going into the second season, she's probably, She's almost, she'll be two in June. And so I think that she's getting closer to the point where she's going to understand the concept of me leaving and being gone for a while. Uh, And actually, you know, my wife is on this trip with me that I'm on right now. We went to New York for a few days. I had a game there and now this game in Indy. And uh, we've been gone for about a week and FaceTiming with her. We can see that she's bummed that we're gone. And when you see that, that does make it really tough. Uh, so for me, it helps me that I really don't have any interests. I'm a pretty boring guy. Like I, I love the industry. I'm obsessed with my job and my family. And so that, that's about it. I really, I, I used to be like a 
diehard sports fan. I don't even know if I consider myself that anymore. It's not like I'm coming home and flipping games on. I'm either working or with my family. So that makes it easier on me to balance it because there's not other things calling for my attention, whether that's, you know, golfing or I don't have a boat or anything like that, you know, that, that would, uh, would attract attention away from what is family time. If it's not work time, it's family time. So it's basketball season right now. You're doing, um, Fox, I'm assuming games for Fox. You have your Dodgers assignment that takes up the whole uh, spring, summer, and for this case, a lot into the fall. What time do you take off to recharge? Is there a time that you go on a long vacation or just stay home and do nothing for a few weeks? When do you get to relax a little bit? Yeah, there really is no part of the calendar that's wide open. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that my bosses at Fox have kind of allowed basketball season to be a little more of a downtime, not quite as hectic. I'll do about 12 to 15 basketball games, whereas in the past I've done in the 30s. And so that gives me a chance to you know, be home for a week with nothing to prep for and uh, be home for much of the winter. January and February and beginning of March are pretty light, relatively light, at least when I'm comparing it to the rest of uh, – rest of my schedule. And I think that as time goes on, continue to cut back and uh, get more and more time at home. But, you know, do do as much as you can when you're young, I guess. And I'm still loving every game that I'm doing. And I think that's always going to be the case. So you know how it is. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. So as long as I feel like I'm still investing as much as I possibly can at home. And when I am home, I'm, I'm with family and, devoting as much to them as I am to work. I'm still okay with not having, you know, your traditional long vacation or a month off here or a month off there. What do you still do to this day to try to improve as a broadcaster? I hope I'm improving every time I go on. I don't look at it at all as, you know, I've got a couple good jobs and so I've made it. I'm always listening back to stuff. You know, I, I'm a, I think that I used to, whereas early in my career, I used to listen to like every single minute of every broadcast I did. It's harder now. Uh, it's, it's harder when you have baseball every single day to go back and listen to everyone. And you, you know, the, the whole kid thing changes, changes things. I can't be sitting around listening to every word when, when I get home and there's diapers to change and playing to do. Uh, but what I do do is, Every game I do, I listen to the highlights, try to do that soon after the game, whether that's that night or the next morning, to try and match up or compare how I felt making the big calls with how they actually translated. So maybe I thought on a quick home run, I was really letting it rip and doing it justice. And then I go back and listen, and to my ears, it fell a little flat. And so I'll make an adjustment the next night. And similar to, I think, how, how a player probably looks at it. Goes back and watches film and sees a little mechanical tweak they might be able to make. And so the next time their turn comes around in the rotation, they, they got something they're doing a little bit different as a pitcher. So I'm always trying to find little things like that to, uh, to help myself improve and always continuing to listen to the guys that I admire and, and pull things from and um, maybe not incorporating as much of other guys, but little ideas that I'll get here and there from listening to the really good ones. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you have a night off? 
Joe Buck has always been the guy that has been calling the biggest games for my entire life, uh, you know, World Series and Super Bowls and everything. And I don't think there's anybody nationally that is as good as him at capturing the moment and captioning the moment for television. So Joe is somebody who I've, I've always looked up to and have probably modeled my style after as much by osmosis as trying to be like Joe Buck just because he has been calling all the biggest games. So, I mean, he's first. Uh, grew up a Cubs fan. So again, by osmosis, Len Casper, Pat Hughes, listen to those guys. I, Pat Hughes, there, there's no better baseball radio guy than Pat Hughes. There's nobody better at utilizing his God-given tool of a voice than Pat Hughes. You know, the, the way that he explores the ranges that he has and uses inflections to make points, there's nobody better uh, than him. So he's somebody I enjoy. And there's a lot of guys. Anytime I do this, I feel bad. I leave people out. But Mike Tirico, somebody who has been a uh, has been a mentor to me personally, and and I pick up stuff from every time I listen to him call a game. I think he takes play by play, you know, to another level. Um, I enjoy listening to Gus Johnson, somebody at Fox who uh, you know who, who does big events and is a recognizable voice. And there's somebody who is uniquely him, right? Who who allows himself to be him. Uh, it, it works for him. And I, I love listening to him do big games and call big moments, uh, but just kind of, like I mentioned earlier, as a, as a broadcasting nerd and somebody who's obsessed with this industry, there's a ton of guys that I like listening to and pulling things from. Walk us through your preparation process for an average regular season baseball game. You know, it's for, for a regular season baseball game, being around it every day, makes the prep kind of like especially for your team being there is the prep right there, there's more to it than that of course you know you're I'm reading articles in the morning I'm, I'm updating uh, numbers on my starting pitcher pages that I have uh, but a lot of it is just being there and witnessing and absorbing the previous game and the previous series and as the season goes on the previous month and, you know, the story that is that season. So that's a lot of it on a day-to-day basis covering a team. There's more prep covering the other team that you're playing. So prepping, uh, you know, prepping individual players for the other team. Uh, baseball, especially in your division, you see those teams a lot as the year goes on. So teams in our division, there's not a ton of uh, nitty-gritty prep that goes into a series in September other than just kind of catching up on who's hot, who's not. You know, doing a national game, doing the the baseball night in America stuff, though, especially if it's American League, where there are teams that I'm not necessarily covering through the year, that's a full week of reading and and trying to basically, and it's no different covering football or basketball, but trying to, in roughly a week's worth of preparation, know enough where I can teach the diehard fans something that they don't know. You know, the people that are following the teams like it's their job, I've got to, in a week, try to be as... uh, well studied and expert enough on their teams as they are and and even even more have you ever felt resentment from older broadcasters who maybe feel they were passed up uh, for the young whippersnapper like you have you ever felt that or has most people uh, genuinely wished you well because you're obviously one of the most talented young people in this business well thanks Logan I I appreciate that and no, I've not. I 
can't really think of any instance where I've felt like, oh, that guy doesn't like me because I'm young or that guy doesn't like me because I got this job or that job. And that says nothing about me. That says everything about the people that are in this industry. And it's an underrated uh, one. It's an underrated reason why this is such a great industry to be in. There's so many good people that and I, I think what it is, is to get to to get to the places we all want to go in this business, you need help. And I think that there's, there's kind of like a, a baton effect to, to people being good people. The people that are helping me, I think were probably helped by people before them to help them get to where they want to go. And so they passed it on. And I find myself now that I, I have some opportunities to, pass along advice or whatever it may be to younger broadcasters. I feel like I owe it to them because I've had so many people be good to me. And so it's just, no, that's one of the great things about this industry is that you feel like it's just an industry full of friends. And I, I, no, I I never, and I know that, but I could be an easy target because of a couple of the things you mentioned, but man, nobody, nobody has ever gone out of the way to make me feel anything other than like one of the guys and, welcome part of the fraternity moving from the midwest to los angeles we joked about this at the beginning of the podcast what was the most difficult lifestyle change going from going from two unique places to another unique place you know i probably truthfully just the cost of living there it's just, it's crazy, right? It is what it is. It's a lot of money because a lot of people want to live there. It's beautiful out. It's 70 and sunny every day. So you, I get it. You kind of have to numb yourself to it. Uh, that, that's probably the most difficult thing. We found an area in South Pasadena where it feels a little bit familiar to us. kind of has a Midwestern feel with like a small community feel to it, trees and sidewalks and everything. Uh, so I think that, that made it a little bit less jarring to find an area that we really like and kind of does feel like home so we we recognize that it's a it's a significantly different place from what we're used to and we're able to uh i think ease that transition by strategically finding a place that we really love do you have any traffic horror stories of of almost getting to the park late or anything like that no, it's one of the great things too about the area we're in is there the time that i'm going to the park there's never traffic it takes me 15 minutes to get there, 15 minutes to get back. So that's a, that's another reason why it's important to find an area that you really like. Because uh, people told us this, and we found this, you're not really motivated to go outside your pocket because of the threat of that traffic being there. Uh, and, you know, I we rarely do we leave our, our little cocoon, our little bubble of South Pasadena in the Pasadena area other than to go to the ballpark. And, and like I said, the, the timing of it when I'm going to the park means that rarely do I deal with any kind of traffic. So we've, we've been able to avoid any nightmares for the most part. Famous last words, I'm sure. <laughs> and I'm going to finish this up. You're just about out of time. Are you, are you at your uh, destination yet? Have you made it to Bloomington? Um, a couple miles away. All right. I know that I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Dodger Stadium over the summer and just kind of take in the environment and just the beautiful stadium and all the palm trees in the background. Do you ever have to just stop and pinch yourself when you show up to work at the ballpark and say, this is my office? 
Yeah, it happens like every day, honestly, when you look out there and you, like you mentioned, you went to a game, so you got to see that backdrop, but our booth is spectacular. The view from our booth, uh, where it's it's not too high to the point where you lose perspective of how beautiful the game is below you, but you also kind of get to see the entire horizon and, and for miles and miles, just, just glorious pictures, beauty. Uh, it's, yeah, not a day goes by where I don't kind of shake my head and say, wow, I can't believe that this is the chair that I get to sit in and this is the backdrop for this chair and this job. All right, final question. This may be the most controversial thing I ask you. I've been out to the West Coast a few times, and I'm going to say In-N-Out Burger is overrated. And as someone who went to a Wisconsin school, I actually think that Culver's is far superior. Am I way off base? Culver's really good. You know what what I like at Culver's is uh, the mixers, concrete mixers. People that aren't familiar with it, it's basically like a a McFlurry at McDonald's, but better. I try, my wife and I try to eat really healthy, so we've not had a ton of In-N-Out. I've had enough where I know that it's really good. I've had enough Culver's to know that you're not crazy for saying that. I'm actually kind of surprised more people don't bring Culver's up into the conversation of the five guys and the Shake Shack and the In-N-Out. Because Culver's, that's an underrated burger place for sure. I, you know, you can throw Thousand Island dressing and call it animal style at home just as well as you can at <laughs> in and out But uh, uh, if someone wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Uh, Twitter is a good place to do it. I have sometimes people send tweets on there and ask if they can get in touch, and I'm always happy to uh, direct message and exchange emails that way. So it's Joe underscore Davis. All right, once again, we are visiting with Joe Davis. He is the local TV voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, also works for Fox Sports. And, Joe, I appreciate you taking some time and visiting with me. You got it, Logan. Enjoyed it, man. That will do it for the podcast today. Thanks for tuning in and making the Say the Damn Score podcast part of your day. Please reach out to the guests. It's nice to show them that they're appreciated and that their time is helping you out in your sportscasting journey. Also, if you have a chance, please take a quick moment and give an honest review and rating of the show. It would be really appreciated by me. And as you go on your way, remember to say the damn score a little bit more the next time you're on the air.